All right, so I'm here with John Abbott this evening, and my mind is still grappling with his story. We're talking two prison stints in different countries, so California and Canada. We're talking two shootouts with the police, both of which someone ended up dead. We're talking a prison escape and John ending up in countries like Japan, New Zealand. Honestly, it is, it is absolutely mind-blowing. So, can you tell us, John, about the first shootout? What happened? How did that come about? Well, I mean, thinking back on it, it was stupid shit that young guys do. My brother and I um, were walking along, and he told me that he was an excellent car thief. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I can steal any car you can point out in 10 seconds. And I said, you're full of shit. Show me. So we went to this parking lot, and sure enough, he stole the car. And then that turned into, it was my turn to do something. So I... I had my eye on this uh, jewelry store full of, in those days, silver and turquoise jewelry was popular. So I thought, well, we'll try and be super cool and uh, burglarize the place. And, um, well, unfortunately, of course, not being professional criminals, we set off the alarm. The police came. Um, My brother put down some covering fire to keep them off us. But unfortunately for us, the policeman was uh, on the back was a Vietnam vet who knew exactly what he was doing. And, uh, well, he, he blew up my brother, and then he tried to blow up me, and fortunately I dived to the ground, and he missed, and I managed to scoot away. So we didn't get any loot, but uh, I got my brother killed. So Jesus Christ. How old were you at this point? I was 21, and he was 18. Oh, my God. So then you're arrested. Well, what happened, um, I didn't know what to do. So I slept in some office in the university. And then the next morning, I tried to phone the hospital to see how he was. But they had a tap on the phone, so they just converged on me, and that was that. What county jail did you end up in at this point? Well, it's called Yolo County Jail in Woodland, little countryside county jail. What were you charged with and what was your bail? There was no bail um, because um, during the six, during the night, um, there were you know shots fired into the police station, and shots fired at police helicopters. Um, and so with that kind of drama going on, there was no bail. Okay, so the judge was just like coming down heavy on you because of everything that happened around it. Um the sentence when I was found guilty was uh, five to life for assault with a deadly weapon, five to life for armed burglary, run concurrently. So how long were you in the jail before you were sentenced? Well, I'd say it would have been, well, I'd say about two and a half, three months maybe. And what were conditions like in the jail? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad because uh, in California... You have a strange demography. In Los Angeles, in Oakland, in those big cities, you have 
hardcore gangs, as hard as you can get. But in the rural sort of what they call white bread counties, basically kids go to jail for stealing cars or selling a bit of marijuana or, you know, fights or drunken driving, things like that. So you've got a real split. And so the jail there didn't have that many prisoners. And most of them were lightweight, kind of simple crimes. So I was like the the star for the time, you know. Did that change after you got sentenced? Well, yeah, because then you go off to the California Department of Corrections. Uh, they they do a the first thing they do before sentencing is there was a ninety day diagnostic at Vacaville, which was uh, Vacaville. It was called medical facility, but half of Vacaville was for the the nutters, as you'd call them. Um, Charlie Manson was there. Kemper, I don't know if you remember Kemper. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, quite famous right now because they've got this uh, new program that's out about the serial killer profiling. And I think he was the first episode. Did you interact with either of those guys? Well, I saw Kemper because um, he, people were afraid of him because he's just, he was a total psycho. I mean, he was carrying around human heads in his car and all sorts of people's body parts in the fridge. But he was a huge guy. And so somebody talked him into going to the weight pit to see how much he could weigh, how much he could push. And he he didn't push weights, but he, he lay down on the bench press and they piled, piled on all the iron they could find and he bench pressed it. And of course, after that, nobody wanted to be near him, right? Because he could put one hand around someone's throat and just choke them out. So anyway, he, they kept him on Thorazine and uh, Prolixin. They used to call it the Prolixin Shuffle where fellas would be dribbling, um, what, just moving at about quarter speed, you know, basically human zombies. Yeah, I saw guys line up for the meds and then, they, you know, they're doing that shuffle in uh, the jails in Arizona. So you're in Vacaville. What happens in Vacaville over this period of time? Well, they want to see how you how you handle yourself because basically what happens is there's psych reviews, and psycho- psychological testing, and then the guards write a report about how you act. And of course, the problem is, for Northern California, all people who get sentenced go to Vacaville. So you've got, you know, your what your car thief, looking at eighteen months or two years, in with some guy from the Nuestra Familia or the Emmy or Black Gorilla Family on the same yard at the same time. So it made for some uh, exciting uh, events. Did you see anything happen, like anyone get stabbed, rivalries, anything like that in Vacaville? Well, um, almost first day I was out on the yard, I went to the weight pit because, well, you saw my picture. I seriously need to upgrade my physique. And I was like a geek, (laughs) a middle-class college white geek with no experience on the street, no gang membership, didn't even, I'd never been to juvie or been through youth authority or any of that. And I realized I was out of my depth. So I immediately went out to the weight pit and thought I better do something. But of course, I mean, the problem is if you can't lift real weight, then there you are looking like a girl lifting some tiny, (laughs) (laughs) which is uh, embarrassing too. But almost the first day I was there, I saw this guy, he was just well, he was huge, great physique, lying there doing bench presses. 
And, you know, he was like, you thought, well, this guy would have no problem at all. And I'm sort of admiring him there. And the second I'm doing that, a gang of nesters come from behind the, the handball court, knock his, his a spotter out of the way. And then they're jumping on him. One of them hit him on the head with a 10 kilo uh, weight. He's unconscious. And they're in the chest. Right? Wow. And I didn't know what to do. And so I'm standing there. And everybody's running like deer for the gate. And then the guns go off and bang, bang, gates are shut. You know, well, you know, basically what happens there. So that was, that was, again, one of these reality checks when you realize it's not happened to someone else. It's happening right here. And it could just as well be you. And if this guy who's, you know, buffed to the max and obviously been in jail all his life, if he gets taken out that easily, oh, well. So there are various stages of adaptation. When I first went in, you know, I'm seeing people get head smashed against toilets and stuff like that, and it's putting this look of shock on my face. And it was like six months later, I'm completely immune. I've just got this dead eyes look from it all. At this point where you're going in there, are you going through a, a period of shock and adjustment? Well, the, the, the shock is the reality that, you could get taken out any time. If, if someone wants to take you out, they're going to take you out. Yeah. Now, you don't feel that when you're outside in regular life. We, we don't confront life and death situations, certainly not in middle-class white communities like I grew up in. So I realized that there are two things I had to do. Until I was able to physically deal with people, I had to keep my head down. So... Like the little deer, just stay still and stay quiet and try to just not be seen. That's the first adjustment. How long did it take you to learn how to physically deal with people? Well, I mean, the problem was that didn't work. There's nowhere to hide. Yeah. Everybody's watching everybody. And there's one thing that convicts are very good at, and that's sensing weakness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, weakness comes in many forms. Kindness is weakness. You, you give somebody a pack of cigarettes because they don't have a pack, that's weakness. And that the word will get around, and then pretty soon, you know, you'll be handing your cigarettes out every canteen day to somebody. Yeah. And other things are weakness. Intelligence is weakness. I mean, that sounds strange. But the more intelligent you are, the more you see things from both sides. Well, there is no other side. There's just survival side. And you better see things that way and not be worried about what's motivating the other guy or you know, what he has in his mind. So that's an adjustment. Is the Aryan Brotherhood approaching you at this point? Well, I noticed when in, in your podcasts, uh, maybe Arizona is different from California, but California had a what's called a private family visiting program. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. But in California, if somebody was married to you or if someone signed a marriage certificate with your name on it, they could come in and have a 48-hour trailer visit. So your wife could come in for 48 hours. And this was a, a really good way to, uh, I mean, looking back on it, it was very civilized. Because the stuff you describe of 
sort of just violent gang rapes to anyone who was unable to defend themselves. Uh, that, and also, as you probably know, California is the the land of fruits and nuts. I mean, there's <laughs> there's enough people volunteering to uh, to uh, trick in the prison without anyone having to force anybody. So again, that was one of the points I wanted to to say was different from my experience. Isn't that through the conjugal visit system how Tex Watson didn't he um, have children? He got women. He got a woman pregnant and stuff through that in California. Manson's murderer. Well, Charlie Manson. I remember I was on the yard and they had him in a monkey cage. Well, dog cage, monkey cage, sort of off the yard, but you could see him if you went to the fence. And he'd sit there like some. Indian fakir, right? A monk with his dirty, un- uncombed, unwashed hair. And he looked like nothing. He just looked like a hobo, some deadbeat. But he got more mail in one week than every other prisoner in the prison did. Grief. Women were, I mean, it was just endless pictures and people volunteering to marry him and people wanting to come visit him, people sending him money. You wouldn't believe it. It was it was a phenomenon. Yeah, I just finished watching the Ted Bundy tapes, and I think he proposed marriage. Well, during the trial, he, he brought up um, a female visitor as a witness and proposed marriage to her right there. And she was all all about Ted. Yeah, Ted Bundy. Yeah. So Charlie Manson. Yeah, that was, uh, of course, you know. One thing I have to say about California prisons is they attracted. Um, media stars. They attracted famous people. You saw famous people. I mean, for example, Schwarzenegger came to Quentin when I was there, and he put on sh- on his show, and it was quite a quite a drama, right? But yeah. So, how long are you in Vacaville for then? Well, in Vacaville, you do that three month uh, diagnostic, and then you get sent back to your county for sentencing. But in case like mine, it's just uh, pro forma. There's no, you know, I mean, I'm getting my time. I'm not. There's no psychiatrist report is going to say, well, it was his difficult upbringing. It was his junky mother. I mean, I came from, you know, an upper middle class professional family. I wasn't abused. I didn't have a drug problem. There was no excuse that I was going to make. So it was do the crime, do your time. And which yard did you land at next? Well, because of my background, I got a I got a good break in the sense that I got sent to what was called the the formal name is the Sierra Conservation Center. Now that sounds like what an, an agricultural farm or something. But the Sierra Conservation Center was split. It was a donut shaped kind of spaceship, um, and it was split in two. One side was medium, and one side was minimum. And I was on the medium side. And I'll never forget the place because the first meal I had, I went into the chow hall with some guys from my county who were there, and we sat down. And I noticed a strange thing. These these young guys, these convicts, were sidling along the wall with their trays held up over their chests. I mean, they were expecting to get attacked any minute. And I asked, what's going on with them? And this old sort of gunfighter I knew, Harvey, he said, these guys are from Tracy, the gladiator school. And 
the if you want to transition out of the prison, you had to show that you could function in a medium security prisoner with other prisoners from different gangs and other and, and that you could handle it and not fly off the handle. So these kids were being sent from the Tracy, which is called the Dwell Vocational Institute, but it's it was a hardcore I mean, there were hundreds of stabbings a year then. And these guys all belonged to the gangs, and they were just cutting each other up any chance they got. So these guys were sidling along the wall, holding their trays like this, just waiting for something to kick off. And they got to the the chow, and as they got to the chow, the guy who had his back to me, he was like one of these six-foot-four, 200-pound Viking gods, right? He was just huge. And he had the SS runes on the neck and the whole thing. And he's standing there, and suddenly this young Chicano runs up and just stabs him right in the back. Just a perfect shot right between the shoulder blades in the back. Into the spine? Then. In the spine. Well, I don't think it hit the spine because this Viking went berserk. He just, i never seen anything like it. He turned bright red. He pulled a shank out of his belt. A guard tried to grab him. He threw the guard on the ground so hard the guard's leg broke. The guard's screaming. And then he turns to go kill this this Mexican, this Chicano. Chicano runs towards the other guards with his hands up. And about four guards tackle this guy. And they roll in front of our table. And we're looking as far away as you are. I'm looking at first the sort of cloth handle of the of the shank, which is right against his spine. And then the bloody point of a welding rod, which is sticking out his chest. And this was the first meal I had at the Sierra Conservation Center. (laughs) So again, uh, I mean, the California prison system at that time was, I mean, from what I've read, it's, it was the, the peak of the sort of racial violence, just total madness. How are you coping with all this going on around you? Well, again, it's a reality check. You just, you suddenly, again, you're thinking, I've escaped from Vacaville. Maybe it'll be an easier street at this uh, conservation center. Well, (laughs) I got my lesson there because this guy, again, was one of these huge, muscular, you know. And then, of course, afterwards, we asked what happened, like what, what, what went down. And it turned out this, the, uh, the Viking, he'd leaned on this kid and told him, you've got to Bonnaroo my clothes. Now, Bonnaroo your clothes means take those blue jeans, give them a knife edge crease, wash them. So he just told the Chicano kid, you have to do this. He just put it on him. And of course, it turned out that the kid, he, he didn't have that much time and he was in for a lightweight beef. But the other Chicanos pulled him aside and they said, you have to do this hit for La Raza. You have to do this hit, homie, or, you know. And so the kid was more afraid of them than he was of, you know, picking up another how many years for cowboy attack right in front of the guards. Now, I went back to my dormitory with my stuff and to make my bed. And then it turned out that he had been in the bed next to me and they just rolled him up. Wow. <laughs> so are they coming at you now doing a charge check? 
you want to see your paperwork, what you're in for, that kind of stuff? Well, in California, it was different from what you described. When I was in the prison there, um, the prisoners ran the prison in many ways. So all the clerks and everybody, they were all prisoners. For example, when I first went to Vacaville, I was given the job as the inmate reception clerk. And the only reason I got the job was I was the only person who knew how to type. So I would, the guards would hand me a sheet giving everybody's crime and how long, what they were in for. And then I would type it up. Well, if you wanted to know what so-and-so was in for, you came to me and you gave me a couple packs of cigarettes and then you found out. So they didn't pass around charge sheets like that, but the prisoners always knew because there might be a guard in charge of a workshop, but all the workers were prisoners and the lead man was a prisoner. And this is true in, in the offices. It was true everywhere, like in San Quentin, for example. So you described these big bad dudes getting attacked. Would you say that big bad fighting kind of guys, mortality rate is higher because people want to prove themselves off them or they're threatened by them versus the guy who lays low? He, he might be like not targeted because he's not perceived as a threat. Have you ever heard this saying, um, the tough guys are all dead? <laughs> have you ever heard that one? I have now. <laughs> well, that that was a saying. And, and it, as far as I could see, it was true. The dangerous guy in prison, the guy who is really dangerous, is small. He's small and quick, and he's afraid. And he's the guy who put the knife, like that Chicano did, right in your back. The big guys, they don't have the experience. They're always confident, and they've been big, so they don't have to fight. People are afraid of them naturally. And so that makes you overconfident. And I've got to say, the two biggest guys I ever saw in prison, both were black. One I saw as he was dying, being carried out of North Block after he'd been weightlifting, bench pressing. And again, they got him when he was bench pressing and put it right in his heart. And the second guy, uh, he was a great big uh, ghetto boy, just like a gorilla. And he... They got him when he was asleep, crushed his skull with a with a weight bar. And um, he never woke up. He never died, but he never woke up. Do you know why they did those hits? Well, the the black guy got hit in North Block would be because he's a member of BGF. So there was an ongoing race war between the white racists against the black racists and then the Emmy, the Mexican mafia, against the Nestors, Nuestra Familia. So in... I think I watched one of your podcasts where you, you said the Nuestra Familia ran things in Arizona. The Nuestra Familia, as we saw it, was the first big Mexican gang were the Emmy, the Mexican Mafia, and they came from Los Angeles. So what happened was the Nestors, the Nuestra Familia, were a reaction to the Emmy. So the northern Mexican, Chicanos, not Mexicans, who came from little towns like Fresno, Sacramento, all these little places in the north, they banded together and formed their gang so they weren't preyed on by the Mexican mafia. So they controlled Vacaville, Soledad, and Tracy. And the Emmy, the Mexican mafia, controlled San Quentin and Folsom. Yeah, we had the MA, the old MA and the new MA, and there was a war between the old and the new in the prison system. And then there was a general war between the Chicanos 
and the Mexicans, which, which caused a lot of violence over the years. So going in there then, are you now having to learn the politics and the gang rules and what to not what to avoid, what not to do and that kind of stuff? How did you learn that stuff? Well, I had one advantage, which I didn't really appreciate at the time, but was an advantage. And that was that I had the right kind of beef. I had the right kind of crime. So well, a shootout with the police. A shootout with the police puts me right where you want to be in prison. Yeah. Uh, being a drug dealer doesn't. Uh, certainly being in for vehicular manslaughter or any of those kind of things doesn't. And certainly, as you pointed out, being a sex offender puts you right at the bottom. But being involved in shootouts with the police, it's like what every convict wish he'd done but didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all the guys who carry guns, but how many actually use them, right? Yeah, yeah. So so surely the Aryan Brotherhood are coming out and like trying to like get you to put work in for them and do stuff? No, that, that movie, The Shot Caller, as far as I knew, that 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 wouldn't have happened in Quentin or Folsom. And the reason was the the AB were a very tight, very select prison gang. They only wanted the one percenters. They wanted the hope to die, serious white convicts who were racist down to their bones and who would do make the hit whatever happened. Because the problem with the whites, the whites were the, well, in California, the racial split is one-third, one-third, one-third. But the whites have the weakest hand. And they have the weakest hand for the very same reason. Just look at us. You know, white people go into prison for lightweight crimes, don't have a, a long criminal history, don't have any experience in gangs. And so a higher percentage of them get preyed on and a higher percentage of them get chased into PC. So the AB were very selective about who they chose because, you know, your life depended on your brother. If your brother turned out to be a rat, then everybody was down forever and nobody ever got out. So the idea that they would pick some stockbroker off just because he had a fist fight w with a black guy in the yard is just a dream world. <laughs> but say like something popped off and weren't all the whites expected to go out and represent Say, like, there was going to be a riot or something? Well, I think... I, I'll tell you a story when I was at San Quentin. Um, the, the, the AB sent two wannabes to kill a young black guy who they thought was a member of the BGF. And they caught him on the fish tier, and they stabbed him about 20 times. And so the word came around, there's going to be retaliation. The BGF's going to stab some white people for sure. And so you have two choices when you hear something like that. You can stay in your cell or you can just carry on because San Quentin is so mad and these things happen so often that if, if you don't, I mean, if you pay attention to that all the time, you're never going to come out of your cell. And a lot of white folks just stayed in their cells. I mean, I go down to the gym and I'd be sometimes the only white guy in the gym working out because the guys were too nervous to be down there because there was no gun rail. The, in San Quentin, there are gun rail officers all around the prison, but certain places don't have gun rail officers. So the library, the classrooms, and the gymnasium at that time. Anyway, so I was in the library. A friend of mine had told me, don't go to the library. 
something's going to kick off for sure. I ignored him, thinking that, uh, you know, as I just said. And I'm in there reading the paper, and sure enough, two BGF guys decide to kill me. So I'm reading the paper. Luckily, I have my back up against a table, so nobody can come from behind. I'm reading the paper, and I glance, and the knife is right here. This guy's coming from my neck. And so I duck my head, and he scrapes top of my shoulder. And as he misses there, I glance, and I see some movement, and his partner's coming on this side. And he comes at me, and he swings, and he misses this way. And so, you know, at this time, I went into hyperspeed. And I crashed into him, and I crashed into this table. The table went over. Me and him sort of crashed through the bookshelves, and we went down. I ended up on top of him. His partner came over to give me one, and he scratched me in the ribs here. And uh, at that moment, the alarm bells went, and this guy figured he'd already got me, so he just sprang over the counter to run. And as soon as he sprang, I turned to face him. And this guy who I was on top of, Brant Broken, ran. So I survived that one. What was the layout like at San Quentin? A lot of people are fascinated by that prison. Like, how old was it? What did it look like inside? And how many prisoners? Well, San Quentin was the first prison, I think, the first or the second, Folsom or San Quentin, built in the 1800s. And so it's massive stone. Folsom is like great. It looks like a Roman temple with these giant stones. San Quentin... It, parts of it look like the gates of hell. I mean, you've got great big iron like doors, massive. And, you know, uh, just you look about this big and you're walking around looking like you're, in, you're on the way to hell and there's no getting out. It, uh, it's none of the, it's, it doesn't, most American prisons now look like uh, junior high schools with flex wire and, and towers around them, right? But not those two. <laughs> We're talking like in the 70s now, before mass incarceration. Yeah, late 70s, yeah. And was it like the stereotypical guards with the chewing tobacco and the aviator sunglasses? Well, the guards were all right because basically they, they, wanted, they just wanted an easy life. So if you weren't stabbing somebody in front of them and you weren't throwing shit at them or doing something very antisocial, they wouldn't bother you. It was different from like from what I can see, goes on now. It was like we were left to it. And so in some ways, San Quentin was like, uh, it was like a mini, I don't know you call it, a pirate's kind of, uh, like one of those towns in the Caribbean that's just full of pirates. And we were all there. And you didn't have that, they didn't care to get in your head, put it that way. There was no, there were no trips to the psychiatrist. Nobody was asking you know, you weren't obliged to come up with some narrative to explain your criminality. I mean, and certainly in Canada, probably the same in UK, the prisoners have to come up to some narrative because these, you know, the, the women on the parole board require, they require some tears, some remorse, and they require some narrative, whether it's you as a junkie because your mother died when you were young or you were abused by your father or something like that. Did anyone act up to the point where you saw the guards in San Quentin shoot them? Well, you could be shot very easily. If you started knifing somebody on the yard, you were just shot down. How many times did you see that? The, the mini 14s, I saw them shoot, but everybody knew what the guards would do, so people didn't fight on them. In fact, to be honest, in contrast to your story, there were no fistfights hardly in San Quentin because the only people who had fistfights were cellmates. You're selling. No one else fist fought. 
any confrontation that turned into a confrontation, somebody got knifed or piped or thrown off the tier or... So, that your story sounded a lot like county jail to me. Yeah. Where the tough guys sort of come over and just beat up some kid and take his stuff. And in San Quentin, that doesn't happen because, or didn't happen then because you, if you're black and you go and take some white guy's stuff, all he has to do is appeal to the AB and someone's going to come and cut your throat. Yeah. Or the AB will, will push him to, to, to make the hit. So there's a lot of pressure like that. Now, to, to give you an example, after that attack I had with the, the, the Black Grill family guys tried to get me, I was, they did an investigation and I was sent to North Block segregation. And I was in there for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I don't have any tattoos. I don't belong to any gangs. And so pretty soon I was released. Well, the guards came to me the uh, female administrator came and wanted me to sign into protection to go into PC. She said, you really want to go into PC? And I said, no, I really don't. And she said, no, you really do because, you know, the BGF tried to do a hit on you. Maybe they're going to try to do a hit on you tomorrow too to finish the job. And I said, no, I really don't. And so they said, well, you got you. you know. They tried, they even called my mother and got her to come and try and plead with me to go into PC, but I didn't want it. I didn't want to, because of course, well, you should know, you get marked with that brush and you're done. Yeah. Most of my craziest stories were in the Maricopa County Jail, where I was housed for 26 months. And the jail, it's unsentenced, so people just coming in and out, and it's completely transitory. So then you've got all this violence going on, but you're talking about after now, you're sentenced, you're in the prison system, and everybody knows everybody in the prison system. They're more settled, so there's not that chaos. But going back to something you just touched on there, how did you get along with your cellmates? Well, I mean, fortunately, in Vacaville, they don't give you a cellmate because they want to, they don't want predatory behavior going on right at the beginning in the diagnostic period. In Sierra Conservation Center, it was dorm system. There was no selling. In San Quentin, it was usually double cell. But sometimes you could get away with um, single cell. I mean, I, I chased off a guy from North Block who they just dumped in my cell. I just told him, no, you're not coming in here. And he looked at me and said, I'm from North Block. I said, I don't give a fuck where you're from. You're not coming in here. <laughs> and because I was trying to keep the cell open for, for my friend, a friend of mine, who was coming from Folsom. And I wanted the cell to be open because if it was open, then he could move into my cell without any drama. But if this guy was there, it wouldn't work. So... So if you told him he couldn't come in your cell, did that then create a problem with the guards? Did they come to you and say, well, why, no. why the fuck aren't you letting him in your cell? No, because he, he's not going to dry snitch like that. Okay. You know, there's direct snitching where you, for example, just say he did this and the guards write it in the book. But there's dry snitching too. Mm -hmm. Now to dry snitch somebody, for example, this fellow here is punching him in the head. I'm a policeman. Now if you look at me and then look at them, even though you don't say anything, that's dry snitching somebody. Yeah, but if he can't get in your cell, he's going to go back to the guards and say, I need a new cell. And they're going to say, we just told you to go in cell D7. Yeah. Go, go back to D7, that's your cell. Oh, he'll just say, I really need to go to another cell. I see, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And they understand that. Okay. So there was more leeway back then. Yeah. 
It so wasn't. It, it wasn't. Like... I mean, I've seen pictures of San Quentin now in the gym we used to work out in. Now it looks like it's got 500 people in, uh, you know, bunk beds, right? <laughs> so, did you end up getting your friend in yourself? Yeah, I did. So that succeeded. Yeah, and because, you know, maybe maybe where you were, the guards made those kind of designations, but in San Quentin. If two guys wanted to go to the same cell, they just gave some cigarettes to the inmate uh, block clerk. And he, he would just get the guard to just, he'd just have him paper to sign. And the guard was signing all kinds of documents every day. And he'd just sign that one too. It was sort of like, you know, like one of these comedies you see, Dad's Army or something. Yeah, we had the Italian mafia guy who was running our building for a little bit in uh, the jail. And he completely corrupted the guards. And at night, we were all locked down. He's outside smoking with the guards, giving them orders. And we could just go to him and, like, say, we want this guy to be our cellmate. The next day, the guards would just bring you a new cellmate. <laughs> he totally... I've never seen anything like it. I thought, you know, you see these movies, like, what is it, Sopranos or um, Goodfellas and stuff like that, where they're, they're all cooking up the stuff in the prison and the corrupting things. But I thought that was just fiction. And then I actually saw it with my own eyes in, in, in the county jail. Oh, no. Well, I mean, the, yeah. the, the Italian mafia, they've got serious... Uh, I mean, everybody's heard of them. The guards have heard of them. Yeah. And if you think of it from the other side, if you've got reach into the community, what's a guard want to do antagonizing you? I mean, really, what does a guard... Why would he want to do that? Yeah. Just do your job and, you know, open the doors, shut the doors, take him to chow, bring him back. But to individually antagonize prisoners? Yeah. There's, there's no sense to it. And it's, and it's easy to bribe them as well because they're, you know, I'm not much paying all that stuff, taking the danger. Mm. So what was so special about this guy? You wanted him as your cellmate? Well, I mean, if, you're, if you have a friend, someone you can trust, that's who you want as your cellmate. So if guys run into the cell, you want a guy who'll jump with you, stand shoulder to shoulder and fight. What you don't want is a guy who'll just lean back and let them uh, take you out. And that's basically it. That's the fundamental rule. If you have some guy who you don't trust, then, you know, you get taken out any day. But if, if people know, those cells are pretty small. And if two guys are standing shoulder to shoulder, no one's coming in. You can, you can stop it. And it doesn't matter if they have a knife or not, because most joint knives are, like I said, welding rods or sort of roughly shaved bit of metal or... I mean, nowadays they even fool around with razor blades on melted toothbrushes. So, I mean, you know, it's not that much of, a, of an issue. Was this a friend from the earlier part of the prison, Vacaville, or was it a friend from prior to prison? No, from Sierra Conservation Center. Okay. Well, I mean, you have a choice. You're in prison. You've got to make some friends somehow. So who do you, who do you make as a friend? Now, you've got all these sort of tribal white racists milling around with, you know, huge swastikas. I mean, I saw guys with SWP, like in block letters on their forehead. SWP? Is, wow. This is your, your history lesson. Supreme white power. Okay. You know, white power down the back arms. Yeah. Swastika here where the Germans' uniforms used to have it. SS runes on the neck. Yeah. This um, AB member who tried to jack me up once had a swastika on his cheekbone right here. Now, if you put a swastika on your cheekbone or supreme white power on your forehead, what kind of future do you think you've got? I mean, 
you think the gang encourages young people to do that? So when they get out, they go a job interview. <laughs> this just don't stand a chance. Well, I mean, you couldn't think of a better way of crippling your chances in life. Yeah. So I used to look at the tattoos. And plus, when I was in jail, was the, the height of the AIDS epidemic. Now, how anybody could have a joint tattoo with, with some guy using an old piece of piano wire or something he found on the ground with, uh, I don't know, an engine taken out of a tape deck and make a tat gun. And how you'd let somebody use, do that with carbon black and make tattoos. I mean, it's just absolute madness. I mean, that was HIV. Now it's what, hep C, right? Yeah, two-thirds of hep C in Arizona where I was housed. You said that an AB tried to trick you or something or tried to test you in some way. What, what happened now? Well, I made a mistake at Sierra Conservation Center one summer's day. And the mistake was I took off my prison boots and I was barefoot. Now, it was one of these beautiful days. You're laying there. You're looking at the sky and you think, well, you know, Things are all right. So I took off my boots and we took off, you know, just sunbathing a bit. My friend says to me, well, why don't you get us some ice cream? I say, okay. So I go over to the, to the canteen to get some ice creams. And as I'm standing in line, this AB member is behind me. And he says, buy me an ice cream, bro. That's all he says. He says, buy me an ice cream, bro. Now, that's the moment of truth in the jail system. It might not sound like much, you know, maybe you could just buy him an ice cream. That'd be fine. He says, buy me an ice cream, bro. And I buy the two ice creams and I turn and look at him and he's just covered with muscles and the tattoos and the guy looks like a caveman. I mean, he's straight out of the fifth century, a berserker ring. And, you know, I told him, I ain't your bro. And he says, you disrespecting me? And I says, I'm not doing anything with you. And I walked off. And he starts shouting at me. Come on, come into the come into the, the dorm and I'll sort you out, you fucking coward, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't turn my back. I didn't make a move. I just continued walking. But the moment of truth has come, right? Now, so I talked to my friend. I said, you know this guy? He says, yeah, it's Stormer. He was the, the Vacaville heavyweight champion, no, middleweight champion, I think, boxing. And he tells me a story how he just took this black guy to pieces, right? And I'm thinking, great. Not only is this guy a psycho, but he knows how to fight. But, you know, my friend says, well, look, just wait two or three hours until he cools down, and then we'll do something. I said, what are we going to do? He says, well, it's too early to get a pipe or something. I said, well, whatever, I'm just going to confront him. And so, but three hours later, he's over playing cards with all his, you know, hangers on. And we walk up and I look him in the eyes and I tell him, Stormer, I'm ready for the, for the dorm now, let's go. And he just looks at me and he says, ain't no thing, ain't no thing. So it's just a heart check. You strike me, then as a bit of a lone wolf. Would you think that, is that accurate? My tendency is that way, yeah. Did you make other friends other than your cellmate over this period of time? Well, what, what finally happened was in San Quentin, I, I, I had a job in education as an education clerk. And I'd been laying low 
like there's rules in San Quentin. If you don't want to get killed, one, don't get involved in the heroin business. Right? Don't be fronting drugs to people or, or owing people. That's one rule. Uh, two, you know, don't be chasing after someone else's punk, right? I mean, that's uh, that's another one of his. Uh, was a lot of that going on? Well, not a lot, but if somebody was that way inclined and you were trying to, you know, cut his grass, so to speak, well, you know, I mean, that was a problem. But of course, the overriding problem was this race stuff. I mean, that was the height of the race war. So the AB, they made themselves famous because they were the smallest tip, but they would always make the hit. And it got to the point right before I got there where they were just going out every morning and hunting blacks. The gate, the, the, the doors would crack open and these guys would find somebody to stab. Jesus. Because basically they wanted to terrorize the blacks into like a peace treaty. The problem was, I, I, do you know how the AB was started? No, can you please tell us how the AB was started? I, I have a general idea, but you were in Cali, and that Cali was where they started, so you probably yeah. got a lot more information than me. Well, basically what happened is some of the older cons um, who've been, been in jail for a long time, they were all right because they've been in jail and they know people, but the Mexicans, I mean, the Chicanos and the blacks were just predating these young whites. And even whites who normally would have been okay, just they had no hope because these black gangs were deep. I mean, they could put together 50, 100 members and they were all over the place. And, you know, how many friends do you have that are going to, like, fight to death with you, right? So, I mean, <laughs> so these guys, they decide we've got to do something. And there was... Some guys had belonged to some uh, Irish, I think it was some biker gang or something, but they, they had a, a shamrock, you know? Yeah. And it started from a core of about six to ten of these guys who said, we've got to do something. And they started, so what they did is they're very selective. They only wanted guys who wouldn't, um, what, embarrass the tip, right? And... To do that, they had to see not just one heart check, but they had to see the guy go through a lot of stuff. I mean... Uh, Get blood on his steel. Well, I mean, that one guy, the most famous AB guy was the one who, he's down forever in uh, that Supermax. There's something on YouTube with him. Yeah, he took out two guards uh, making his hit. Wow. They interrupted the play, and so he took them out too. And of course, I think he's just 24 hours a day lockup for, he's been there like 30 years. Anyway, so the AB, they, they got recognized as being a prison gang by the guards. And as soon as that happened, they started getting taken off the main lines and sent to Folsom. So then they started getting smarter and the guys didn't announce they were AB. They, they played it cool and laid back in the cut. Or they said, well, I'm not involved in that anymore. And maybe they'd cover up a tattoo or something. Because otherwise, I mean, you were just throwing your hands up and said, here I am, take me away, right? For, you know, all day in isolation. You just go to the adjustment center, AC, and you'd be there forever. So the AB represented the whites, but they weren't, 
I mean, as an ideology, what do they represent? I mean, for them, the blacks were, what do they call them? Toads, hams, ham bones, spear chuckers, chimps, whatever you want. I mean, it was just abuse all the way around. And their idea was if one white gets stabbed, then we go stab a black. It doesn't really matter who it is. Anybody will do. Well, the end result of that is just going to be total anarchy. And like, you know, how can anyone do their time in a situation like that? So for me, it was very simple. If you were fucking with me, then you had a problem with me. And I had a problem with you. And we'd work it out somehow. But I'm certainly not going to go out. Well, to give you an example, after I got out of North Block, after that stabbing, this Nazi tip came from Soledad after a race riot, about eight of them. And they came onto the line in San Quentin. And the word came back to me that they were saying, either I had to make a hit on some blacks or I had to check in. That was where it was. And as soon as I heard that, I said, well, we got to do something. So I talked to a friend of mine. I said, where are they? And he said, well, they're down on the yard near the old garden. And so we went down there, my friend and I. And there were five of them there. And they became, I think you might know the name, the Nazi lowriders. Yeah. yeah. That, that was where it started with those guys. And so I went down there. And the guy's sitting there, the leader of them. And I said to him, you know who I am. And you know why I'm here. Now, I don't hold with that racist bullshit. I don't have any tattoos. I ain't going to stab somebody I don't know. I'll stab somebody who fucks with me. So the question is, are you fucking with me? Because if you are fucking with me, we can deal with it right now. And he just looks at me. And the other ones just look at us. And that's it. That was the end of it. It was squashed. So it was like, I mean, we were fighting, people like me were fighting a losing battle because that, those, that, that racist gang stuff came out of, well, the AB were like that, but it, they didn't try and control the whole prison. But that racist gang stuff that you're describing comes out of those people in youth authority who then 20 years later are, you know, 30-year-old convicts, you know, whatever, 40-year-old convicts. And then they try and force everybody into that scene. But when I was there, you could still, if you were up for it, I mean, if you didn't mind confronting him right right there on the moment. Then, yeah, yeah it's, be it's become a massive murder of hire and drugs business in and out of prison now um, across the country, hasn't it? Quick question on something you mentioned. You said that if they saw the ABs were patched in, if it was obvious they were ABs, they sent them over to Folsom. Yeah. Why did they send them to Folsom? Well, they had to send them somewhere. Okay. They didn't have Pelican Bay or those, uh, you know, high-tech uh, adjustment centers. So Folsom had an adjustment center. Folsom, I mean, San Quentin had an adjustment center, but there were only so many cells. And if you bag up a whole prison gang, you know, how many guys is that going to be? 50, 100? Where are you going to put them? Yeah. So Folsom is a good choice. Uh, you you had a man, what was it, Mr. Kane? There. Yeah, Jamie yeah. Morgan Kane. Yeah, yeah. He he said he was at Folsom for a long time, so he certainly probably know more about it. I, I only yeah. was on Folsom one day, so I mean one night, so I can't report much about it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So how long are you 
uh, into your sentence now on this first stint. How how uh, many years did you do actually serve before you got released? Well, I did f- I did about five in in the United States all in, and then about another eleven and a half. Excuse me, another six and a half in Canada. When did the escape arise? Was that in California? Yeah. What possessed you to escape then? Why did you want to do that? Well, it's family history, really. My grandfather was captured by the Germans, and he escaped seven times and got recaptured six times. So it's in your DNA. And one of his stories was middle of the night, rain lashing down. He's on the Dutch border, German-Dutch border, crawling through the mud, and he comes through a culvert, and he sees a tree, and he puts his hand to pull himself forward, except it was a German guard's boot. Border guard. (laughs) And so I thought to myself, I can't, I got to escape at least once to sort of, you know. Inspired by the legend. Yes, of my grandfather. So what thought process went into the escape? How long did you plan it? Were there accomplices? I tried to escape once before. Um, I'd planned to escape all along, but the problem was I wasn't equipped for escape. I didn't know. I mean, if you gave me a, a paper clip, I couldn't open a, a pair of handcuffs. So that was no good. And um, I certainly didn't know any locksmithery or any of these kind of tricky stuff. And so I thought to myself, I'll just wait and see what comes up. And something came up. I was sitting in the Olo County Jail's uh, yard. And this Indian sits down beside me. and he, And he says to me, there's one strand of uh, mesh fencing that's come loose from the weld. And I said, yeah. And he says, yeah. And we look up, and sure enough, the thick, heavy meld, I mean, uh, mesh fencing had been welded onto the steel rims, but one piece had come loose. Now, what I didn't know and what he did know was that one piece loose on a mesh fence means there's no fence at all if you work at it. And so we looked over at the guard, and there was a guard watching us all two hours we were out in the yard, except that he loved Zane Gray. He loved dusters. So he's always reading these uh, dusters. So we noticed that there was a, a fence, like a window post, and he was reading, and he could see the yard except this one little window strip and so I sat and I looked and I I figured out that the angle from that window strip expanded as as you go back and so at one point it was about two feet wide so I stood there Cornell climbed up and while this guy was reading his book right in front of God and everybody I mean Cornell's work in the fence but he couldn't get it open that one day so anyway we go back inside and I'm excited as can be, right? Thinking, well, going to have another kick at the can here. Except somebody dropped a wire to the guards, and mm. I got bagged up about an hour later, but he didn't. And the next day, Cornell just grabbed the tallest guy he found, told him to stand there, climbed up, started working the fence, got his foot in, pushed it open, climbed up on the roof, jumped off the... Uh, jumped off the county jail roof. Now, this little Marine who who deserted, he just suddenly broke and climbed up the guy like a monkey, and he went out. Except that 
he jumped off the roof and broke both his ankles. And they found him behind the dumpster there crying and moaning. But anyway, that was my first attempt to escape, and it never happened. So yeah, I missed that one. How long before the next attempt? The next one came about um, oh, two years later, something like that. How many years into your sentence are you now? Well, the, the trouble is those were called five-to-life sentences. I see. So you never really knew how long your sentence was. So that motivated you to want to escape? Because there were guys who'd done 12, 15 years on a five-to-life. It just depends on what happens to you inside. So they don't actually, in those days, they didn't have to take you back for another crime. You get into a beef and crack someone's head open. It goes onto your jacket. And then the pro board see it and say, well, we'll see you in a few years there, uh, Mr. Atwood. And years pass and years pass. And in fact, while I was inside, they got rid of those sentences because they were seen as unfair. Um, well, that they were maybe cruel and unusual punishment because prisoners never actually knew how long they were going to serve. And some people got out in two and a half years and other people did 10 years on the same crime. Part of the of being on sentence for me, 26 months remand, facing a big, uh, you know, life sentence at 200 years at one point, they told me um, that uncertainty was worse than anything, worse than the violence, worse than the cockroaches, worse than the heat. Just never, just thinking you could possibly never, ever get your life back. I just felt that just slowly sending me insane. So I know where you're coming from, definitely. Well, fortunately, while I was in, they brought in determinate sentencing. Yeah. So with just a, just the, the, the signature of the governor on a piece of paper, suddenly everybody had fixed dates. And when they had fixed dates, it means you didn't have to perform for the parole board anymore. So nobody went bothered with the psychologist or the psychiatrist anymore. There was no more creeping around the chapel trying to get the priest on your side. <laughs> the chapel, I like that. <laughs> so the second escape then, what's what's the method and what's the Well, it was pretty, I, I wanted it to be 100% sure. So I didn't want any convicts involved because unfortunately, convicts have a tendency to sell information like that. Um for their program or for to get out earlier for something. And so I didn't want anyone to know. So there were no convicts involved in my story. So I just waited till I got sent out to the uh, forestry camp. As you probably know, all these forest fires you see on the news being fought in California, 90% of the, of the actual forest fighters are convicts who are basically told, do you want to get out? Well, there you go. And so, of course... If they get burned up in the fire, nobody's crying too much. So so you were assigned to fight a fire? Firefighting. That's, okay. That was the job. This wasn't planned then? This was just, you didn't get the job to do that? Well, no. I, I was, again, I was always in a good position because I knew how to type. I mean, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, <laughs> right? So that meant I could be the clerk. So the clerk jobs were always sweet jobs because... Instead of being in the fire line working 20 hours in the hot sun and smoke and cinders and all the rest of it, you sat at your typewriter and drank hot coffees and, uh, you know, pondered your next, uh, whatever you were doing, course, or, you know, if you want to write bad poetry, you could do that too. So can you take us through the day of your escape? Well, it was, it was just pretty simple. I just uh, arranged for a friend to uh, 
you know, park a couple kilometers down the road and uh, just wait for me late at night. So I crept out of the uh, out of the uh, the dormitory, made sure the the guards, because of course, being the clerk, you knew when the guards were doing their rounds and what was going on. So you just chose a time when the guards were having a snooze. Because, uh, of course, it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning at a forestry camp. <laughs> so there were, it was actually, a, there's no ex, there's no drama behind the, the escape. It was pretty easy. Was the drama being on the run? The drama was being on the run because if you're an escapee, you've got no ID, no money, no job, no place to stay, and no future prospects. What about the person who picked you up? Did that person provide you with anything? No, he was, he'd just come down from Canada just as a tourist, basically. He had this old car and he knew I was in jail. So I just got the word from him, can you pick me up? And he didn't live there. He didn't have a house. He didn't have anything. So he wasn't, uh, and he didn't want to stick around either after that. <laughs> so, where, where did you go? Well, this is the thing. I, the only place you can go is Skid Row. I mean, realistically. So I went down to uh, the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And, you know, there you are with whatever you've got. You know, I had, had a few dollars from the prison that I'd, you know, saved you know, a few $20 bills. And I managed to get a room for a week down at the Tenderloin. And then, of course, what do you do? There you are. And unfortunately, at that time, the Tenderloin, it's probably still true now, was just filled with junkies. So you got all these junkies looking like feral rats, sort of, looking for anything that can move or they can steal. So you got a lot of competition. <laughs> so I was down at the Cala food store shoplifting meat, and, 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 and I'd, I'd buy the vegetables and the potatoes and shoplift the meat and the cheese. And then I was down, uh, well, again, I started boosting out of stores to sort of decorate my apartment. Uh, I mean, it was a... It was a a serious hand-to-mouth existence. Hunting and gathering, just like we used to do 10,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel unusually alive at this moment? Yeah, of course you do, because you're living by your wits. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with middle-class life that we lead, that we grew up to, is in many cases, it's just boring. You sit in classrooms being bored, then you graduate to universities where you sit in classrooms being bored, and then... You get a job and you can be bored in a job and go back and watch boring TV. I mean, the, there's got to be more in life. So as a young man, I thought, I've got to live life. I mean, I'm a young guy. It's time to do young guy things. And I've always liked studying history. So there were lots of examples. So um, as soon as I hooked up with my uh, crime partner, we just went on a spree. So you're free. You use skid row. And now you're hooking up with a crime partner. Right. Where's this person materialized from? Well, he, he'd been released, you know, on parole. This so, is someone from Quentin? Yes. Not Quentin at the time, but Sierra, the Sierra Conservation. Okay. Through, through there. So all of a sudden you got somebody, there's two of you. How did he find you? Well, it was, you know, you have, you have names in common, people you know, you know, name, uh, numbers and phone books. So all of a sudden there's two, and then you can just run amok, and that's what we did. He had a list of, of drug dealers that we could rob and um, or what well, we called it collecting on debts or whatever the description of that was. But basically, we were robbing drug dealers. 
So you've gone from like a skinny, nerdy, hippie-looking guy before you got arrested to this buffed-up guy now getting out of prison, clicking up with another prisoner to robbing drug dealers. That's well, quite a transformation. Well, the problem is, what do you do when you're, you're on escape? I mean, in a sense, I mean, you know, on television or in the movies, the guy has a friend who gives him all this excellent fake ID and, you know, you fall into a job. And you watch Banshee, right? The guy becomes the deputy sheriff, you know? That's not what happens in the real world. Most escapees, like Cornell, I was just telling you about that Indian who did escape from the Yolo County Jail. They found him three months later, destitute, asleep on a bus bench at Las Vegas bus station. I mean, that's that's where you end up. You know, escapees, usually escapees go straight back to the girlfriend's house or mom's house and get arrested like six hours later, whatever, right? I was determined not to do that. I want to stay out for longer than six hours. It'd be embarrassing. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, in a sense, you know you're going back to jail, so you don't want to embarrass yourself. Yeah. So we ran amok, and we had fun. I must say, Robin Drug Dealers was entertaining. Are you an adrenaline junkie? I don't, I don't know if it's that, but I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a tough guy. That's the first thing. I'm not a tough guy. And... I'm not an adrenaline junkie in a sense of skydiving, climbing mountain, rock climbing with no help or anything like that. But I must say, Robin drug dealers warmed my heart. It was um, it was like it was like being a pirate because drug dealers collect not lots of nice stuff, <laughs> and I had nothing in my apartment. <laughs> and the first people, the first people we hit were. Um, the guy was, there were two drug dealers working for the Hells Angels. And they were somewhere in... Did you know they were working for the HA? Yeah. Isn't that a bit of a kamikaze thing? Well, no, because once you're on escape, what what does it matter? Fuck right? everyone, basically. <laughs> I mean, you're basically a wolf in the, you know, on, in, the, in the paddock with the sheep, right? Yeah. And so, anyway, so the, the story was that these people had been fronted a pound of coke by somebody we knew, his, the, the wife of somebody we knew, and they just stiffed her because they knew he was in jail. So we felt like the white knights on this one. Yeah. And so it went down as it usually as, as it does, you know, sneaking around, reconnoitering the place, the knock on the door, kick the door off the hinges, he flies through the air, guns, guns out. But the, the unfortunate part was that the Hell's Angel, or I guess he was a Hell's Angel, showed up in the middle of all this right and and it was it was it was really exciting because there were three doors i could hear his chopper sort of pull into the garage and there were three doors he could be coming out of and we didn't know which one it was right so we're standing waiting for him and suddenly the door opens and there he is and he's the quintessential biker you know with the bandana and the beard and the sunglasses and all the accoutrements right and he looks at me as I say, freeze. But he didn't really believe me. I guess I was sweating too much and looking, you know. But uh, my partner put the gun under his jawbone. He believed that, right? So we tied him up. And, well, I mean, there were drugs. There was money. There was leather coats, racks of champagne, uh, you know, whatever you want. Bose speakers, the latest of everything. So I died and gone to heaven. We spent about three hours there packing up everything. 
took his chopper, took everything, the drugs. And we, we left the girlfriend, didn't hurt him, didn't do anything like that. So again, once it's like the pirates, once they have one good hit, they get excited. And they think, oh, is this, this all it takes, right? <laughs> I shouldn't be talking like this because you were a drug dealer. <laughs> so beware of, of convicts on, on escape. <laughs> how, many, how many of these hits did you do on drug dealers? Oh, it's, it's, well, I mean, as, as much as the information came in, we'd do them. So I don't know, might have been a dozen, ten. Dozen. Information like people buying drugs from those people would tip yeah, you guys yeah, off yeah. and they get a piece of the action. Yeah. And because... Because the people don't really like drug dealers, right? They know drug dealers are making money off them, so they resent it. So it wasn't hard to get information about <laughs> drug dealers. <laughs> did your spree just involve robbing drug dealers, or did it exacerbate no, other course, things? No, of course. You, I mean, we... <sighs> because you're basically a gun for hire, in a way. So we got hired. One, one job we got was uh, we worked for the mob in... Uh, in the uh, Bay Area. And there was, at that time, the Hells Angels were, they decided to go into the uh, sandwich truck business. And in typical Hells Angels fashion, their idea of dealing with the competition was throwing grenades into the trucks of the uh, their competition. So they started, they burned about three or four trucks and they were chasing people off their spots and they were developing this big chain of, of uh, anyway, we got hired to, to bodyguard these sandwich trucks. Were they grenading the trucks with people in them? Well, no, they wouldn't blow people up, okay. but they would They would wait. For example, you drive the truck back to your house. It's parked outside your house. It just puts a grenade underneath the yeah. gas tank, and away she goes. You can look that up. It's you know, They call it the, uh, the sandwich truck wars. Anyway, so we, we got a job. If we had to cruise, the, the mob also owned sandwich trucks a chain of sandwich trucks so we got to cruise all their sites looking for any evil looking bikers hanging around so that was one of the jobs we got what year are we in now oh where are we this time i guess around 1978 maybe something like that okay and did the spree any any other crazy stuff on the spree or well you know of course there were a few robberies thrown in here and there right yeah, um, we quite liked Asian. I mean, uh, Persian rugs. Yeah, so it was a Persian rug robbery came in there. And antiques also we quite liked because we were basically we were furnishing our apartment. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How long did the spree last? <laughs> not not that long. It, it, it was more about months, I guess. Eventually, what happened is that we got too excited, and we started trying to form the wild bunch, right, by recruiting guys in. And of course, the word spreads. And one fateful day, I'm in the apartment. There's a knock on the door, and the firemen say there's a gas leak. Mm-hmm. So I look out at the firemen, and I think, oh yeah. So I go back, and I, I got an a- a- AR-15. So I get the AR-15, and again, this is another moment of truth. Do I just start? Do I let them have it through the door, and try and shoot my way through? Or do I try and sneak away? So I opt for the civilized choice. I go outside, and then I can hear the firemen coming out the back exit. And I try to bluff my way past them, saying, oh, there's a gas leak. You know, we got to get out of here. But, of course, they got my picture. So it turned out the FBI had, had taken over the Knob Hill fire station, taken the 
uniforms of the firemen, told the firemen to stand down, not informed the San Francisco police because they didn't trust them. And so... Wow. Where did you end up back then? Well, that's straight back to San Quentin, isn't it? Did that then make it so that your probation would be fucked up? Well, I wasn't. You're an escape there was no, no probation. I, I mean, was parole, parole, sorry, parole. Well, it wasn't a parole. I'd escaped, so okay. my sentence just continued. The thing you was... Did, you didn't have, they didn't have time for your sentence. That's what's getting Well, me. the thing was, there's a reality in, 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 certainly in California. At that time, there were literally tens of thousands of criminal cases coming up every week. Yeah. So every jurisdiction was just avalanched, inundated with cases, just endless cases. Mm -hmm. And so how do you manage this? Each one costs money and the county has to pay. So for example, I escaped from Shasta County for that forestry camp. So I had to go all the way back to Shasta County to face trial. Well, if I asked for a jury trial, even though it was a, a sure cinch conviction, they'd have had to come up with tens of thousands of dollars to put the whole process together. But if I say, well, I'll just plead guilty, I'm making it easier for them. And the quid quo pro is they don't add any extra time. And so they were happy with that. So I escaped and basically there was there was not a day added to my sentence. Wow, you got so lucky. In Arizona, you would have got like five to 10 added on probably. Um, so... How long have you got left to serve now on that sentence? Well, I mean, I'd have probably had to do another. Well, because it was originally a five to life, I would have probably had to do the five. And that's about what I ended up doing. Has your status gone up on the yard now? Because not only have you done shootouts with the police, you've also escaped. Well, no, that, that escape isn't counted for anything because it's just a forced camp walk away. A lot of those happen. It's, I see. It's okay. not, we're not talking escape from Alcatraz. <laughs> <laughs> was it an easy ride the rest of your sentence or did things well, happen? No. Well, it was different because now, now I was one of the players. Like It wasn't like it was when I first went in. I, wasn't, I, knew, the, I knew the system and I knew some people. So when I walked out on the, on the Vacaville yard that time, I remember clearly there was guy called Doug Orr, who was uh, one of the inner circle of assassins for the Hells Angels. And it was my crimey. And then two guys, one guy from my county and another guy and two other hangers on. We'd sort of, now we had the mana. If Do you know that word mana? You got the respect. Yes. And so, you know. Isn't the HA dude having a problem with you though? Because you robbed well, no, the HA drugs? No, because... The, the Hells Angels are a very tightly organized bike club, but there's very few of them in prison. They have good lawyers. Yeah. And generally speaking, if the lawyers aren't good enough, the witnesses have a tendency to disappear or keep quiet. Yeah. So not many, not many of them go to jail and go to prison. You have to be pretty extreme mm -hmm. because they have, they can hire any lawyer in California. I mean, they have deep pockets. Mm-hmm. So actually, they're not represented on the yard very yeah, much at all. That's 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 the same in Arizona. Yeah, the ABs have got the power. Yeah. 
All right, so you're out there and these guys are on Vacaville. What's... Right, so now now when we go to Vacaville, we know we're just there just because on paper they have to put us there for a, for a month or something. And then they send us up back to Quentin. So it's off to Quentin. And there we go. And, yeah, you know, here I thought I was, you know, cool being at Sierra Conservation Center, but Quentin's a whole different world. I mean... It's the, it's basically the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum, and yeah, you you're in a different reality there. In what way? Well, as I said, the the rate of violence, um, you know, cutting in front of the convict in the in the canteen line, that's grounds to get stabbed. Not paying back five 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 packs of cigarettes, that's that's a stabbing. Now, in Marin County, they have. They, at that time, they had one of the best stab surgery uh, units in the United States because they had so much practice. So guys would be stabbed five, six, ten, twelve times, and unless it went through their brain or through their heart, they could put them back together. But the sheer extent of it, I mean, I was in San Quentin for two weeks when I came out of my cell, and we had I was on the fifth tier. Now, in San Quentin, I don't, you might have seen the movies, but it's a long drop down to a concrete floor and there's no netting. Mm. Not only is there no netting, there's no like mesh on the thing. There's just three pipe railing. So I come out and I'm walking down the tier and these two guys are trying to throw this kid off the tier. And they've got him half off the tier. And every convict, black, Chicano, white, we're just gently stepping around these two guys trying to throw this kid off the tier. Do you know what the kid had done? The kid had been in county jail with them. And he came to San Quentin and he had a TV set and they asked him if they could borrow the TV set to watch the the Niners game. So he lent them his TV set because, of course, you know, he wants to be in with them. So as soon as the, the game was over, they sold the game to the Mexicans. They sold the TV to the Mexicans for twenty dollars, uh, you know, cap of stuff. And uh, he came back the next morning and asked them for his TV. And as soon as he asked them for the TV, they just grabbed and started throwing him off the tier. So as we walked past, and of course we can't look at this because that's dry snitching. There's a guard reading a comic book somewhere at the corner, but he doesn't see it. And this guy doesn't scream. This is the thing that surprised me. He didn't scream. Screaming's dry snitching. Well, it? he's just desperately holding on, and his one leg's over, and his crotch is up on top of the bar, and these guys are trying, and he's desperately holding, and we just walked past that like it wasn't even there, and we went off to breakfast. Now, the guards, you know, they must have let up because they couldn't get him over right away. And so we knew there was going to be round two at some point. And at lunchtime, they caught him in the rotunda going to lunch, and they piped him, but the guards saw it, and so they were arrested. But that's that was the kind of thing that was going they on. They piped him fatally? No, I don't think so. I, I don't remember, really. But what I'm saying is just that, that there was no... Every mistake you make, you, you pay in blood. There was no... You, you couldn't push somebody or you couldn't even walk into somebody's cell usually like without permission that was a violation and these guys were doing all day there life without possibility parole and 
there were knives everywhere in San Quentin. I mean, there was a metal shop where guys made knives as their as their 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 sort of a uh, you know scam. It was before the days of all these uh, you know high tech sensors and all the rest of it. Where was all the metal coming from? The metal shop. The metal shop. Yeah, they used to make things out of metal. California made uh, prisoners made tables and chairs. All the oh, I see. All the furniture for the prisons and for yeah. state offices was made in prison. Did you make any more mistakes? Well, I mean, I made the what mistakes did I make? I well, here's here's I got involved in business when my friend when my friend came. I told you I was working as an education clerk, and I was sitting there. And there was a Gestetner machine, and there was about 300 reams of colored paper, and there was my desk and a typewriter. And that was my working job. Now, I thought to myself, this isn't any good. i got to do something more exciting than this. So a new guard came in, and this guy was interesting. He wasn't the usual guard. He was a Ruski. He'd come over and he joined the American army to get citizenship quickly. But he didn't see us as convicts. He sort of saw us as just enlisted men in the same army. And he was an officer and we were enlisted men. And <laughs> I was amazed at this guy because he, he almost all the guards have internalized the scumbag guard, you know, relationship. So, but this guy hadn't. And so I said, well, can you bring me in a TV guide? Because in those days, everybody had a TV. But by the time they searched, if you had a subscription to TV guide, by the time they searched it and you actually got it in the mail, they made sure that it was Thursday. So there were only two or three days left on the guide by the time you got it. So there was no point. So I said to him, can you bring me a, a TV guide Monday morning? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I mean, TV Guide helps guys watch TV. It's like, you know. And he says, okay. And so he brings me a TV Guide. So I go to work. I type up a, 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 a Gestetner's, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing to put in the Gestetner of the TV Guide. I run off whatever it was, 500 copies. I put the whole thing together. And I had it done by the evening, Monday evening. Then I decide I have to go try and sell these things. But of course, what are you going to do? Who are you going to sell them to? Just white people? Well, that I, I couldn't see that working. So I took the chance. I decided, well, I'm just going to walk across the tribal lines here. Hello. So I went down the tier to every cell. And I come to the black guy and he says, fuck off, white boy. And I said, TV guide, that's half a ducat a week. Take it for free. I'll be back next week. Just cool and neutral. And I got told to fuck myself about six, seven times. But a lot of guys just took it. And I handed them out free. Well, after that, I had myself a business. I was getting 50 cents for every guide. And on the East Block Bayside, I was selling 200 a day. Or, I mean, a week. Because they were covered a week. And as soon as I did that, I had guys from each block run to me and say, can I be a distributor? And I'd say, yes, half the money. You don't pay me. You don't get any more guides. And pretty soon, there was just hundreds of dollars coming in every week. And the guards knew this was happening. But for the guards, this was, this was positive. Because 
people watching TV is how the guards want you to do your time. Babysit them. You you just fall into this endless zone, and a decade passes, twenty years pass. If you if every convict sat down and said, "I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison," well, and and they they internalize that reality, then why not take all the guards hostage? Why not a hundred guys run and try and climb over the fence, and maybe twenty get away? Why not? But if you're all watching TV and waiting for your next movie, and you know when is Kim Kardashian going to be on the show? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and so this TV guy business suddenly, almost like magic, a tip started to coalesce around us, and it was kind of like the non-involved, the non-gang member, slightly more intelligent uh, guys. And soon we had like 10, 15 guys and we knew what was going on and we branched into different businesses at Quentin and various kinds. You know, run a book um, like tear sales. You know, you buy a cola for 25 cents, lukewarm at the store, but we sell it to you for 50 cents, but it's ice cold right out of the bucket. You know, the, the Mexicans, the Chicanos had the uh, tortilla business. They stole all the meat out of the, of the kitchens. I mean, each group had their own, but except the blacks, they, I don't know, they just didn't seem to be able to keep it together, right? Selling dope, I suppose, but the more legal hustles were you know, a bit beyond them. So you said this was a mistake that you made, though, this is going to end bad, is Well, it? It, it's not going to end bad because it was a mistake in the sense that I, I went across tribal lines. I mean, for example, some of the things you described that you did in Arizona would have got you chased in a PC or stabbed for sure at Quentin. You yeah. couldn't hang out with black guys on the yard. That that just wouldn't go. I got told off um, working out with a Mexican-American guy early on. The whites are all like, you see anyone else working out with uh, other races and all this shit, yeah. So that was, that was stepping out. But the thing is, how to put it? I couldn't see myself as a victim in jail. I had to be... I mean, for me, it was like going to a different country and it's a different culture and you get used to the culture. Pretty soon you start functioning in the culture and you start trying to do things. That's the way I saw it. I'd, I never I never want to see myself as a victim because, I mean, for me, if you if you see yourself that way, you've given up the fight already. Right? So. so as you got more savvy, nobody tried to stab you again. Well, I mean, the racial thing happened. That happened after I did the uh, <coughs> TV guide business. And that was... The, the Black Girl Family thing. The Black Girl Family. After. Okay. But the interesting thing about that... That was tit for tat. Well, it was, it was a race thing. They didn't care who they stabbed. Yeah. In fact, the four white guys who got stabbed, it was me, Greg, an old man who I remember was just laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling as this guy was plunging him. He didn't even try and fight back. And one other guy. But the way I got out of North Block was very interesting. My crime partner went to the blacks on the Bayside fifth tier and he asked him to sign a petition for me to get out of segregation. Now that had never been done before. The idea that the blacks would sign a petition to get a white boy out of segregation. But of course what people didn't know is that we were selling this black guy speed uh, on the line. It was one of the businesses we were doing. So, so you'd become a drug dealer. Well, I didn't handle that particular side of the business, but uh, I was, it was part of our thing, yeah. 
So how long now before you get out? What's your year of release? Well, it, it what happened was after I got, you know, I got I didn't get stabbed. I got nicked. So yeah. I had three bandages on me. So it was interesting when I went to the showers, when I got a North Block, all the blacks were like eyeing me, eyeing me for all these stab wounds that they were told by the by the bros that that uh, I'd been afflicted on. But in fact, it was three nicks. I had three bandages. Anyway, <laughs> I think that bought me some what um, uh, credit with the with the uh, what the uh, California Department of Corrections, in the sense that I was a potential problem because my mother was a sort of quite a well-known professor at the university. And my father had a high-powered job with the World Bank. And the idea that I'd been attacked in a racial attack, I think it gave me, nobody, I never found this out, and I don't know if that's true, but I think that I got the benefit of the doubt for release on parole. So I was released on parole. What is your relationship with your parents like at this point? Are you going back to the house? Or? No, no, I was, I was, they'd, they cut you they'd, off. They'd washed their hands of me. Basically, yeah. I'd shamed them. Not only shamed them, but it's, but I got my brother killed in their eyes. So, oh my God, yeah. So there was, there was, you know, I mean, what? <laughs> you think some of your aggressive behavior that came about, the, the thing with the police and the shootout and your brother's death, do you think you, you, you had like a rage and a, a turmoil and a chaos just, just, going inside you because of going through all this that then came out you know you starting to do these these uh things that could potentially end up with you dead robbing drug dealers going up against hell's angels working for the mafia do you think one fed into the other or do you think you've just got a natural there's something in you that you um you don't strike me like as a big tough guy but there's an aura about you of not to be messed with like you've got a serious energy that comes off you well, I believe that everybody has this spirit in them. I think it's human instinct. I mean, we we went from, what, 100,000 years of living on the savannah with the lions. I think it's in all of us. And the thing is, it's in our civilized life, you don't get called upon unless you go off to war, for example. But I was in the deep end, and I had to find that instinct and and... and revel in it if i didn't <laughs> who knows where it would have ended up right yeah i certainly wouldn't have been happy with myself so as, as in terms of rage i would say no because i'm quite cool-headed in fact in times of extreme action i i usually make the right move i don't know why but it usually works out that way and, I, and the reason i tell you this is because in these shootouts people each time someone's died, and the same thing happened to me as happened to them, but they went down and I didn't. So call it luck, I don't know. Maybe it's luck, some instinct, I don't know. But I wouldn't say it's rage. I, th I think, I mean, to be honest, I think guys in prison, the guys who come to prison, come to prison because they do things they like doing. I don't, I don't look that in terms of psychological, um, what, deep psychological reasons. I, I have a feeling you do what you want to do. So I made, I remember each decision that I made, and I made the decisions. And I put myself in the situation. And 
Nobody forced me to. In fact, it was going against all the common sense I'd learned, you know, in my upbringing. I mean, I didn't have a bad upbringing. I've got no, no reason for to exclaim that. But I will say, you got to have some excitement in your life, and I certainly got that in spades through this experience. Where do you go now? You've been released. Well, are you talking my final release? No, no, we're just getting out of California uh, Department of Corrections. Well, <sighs> consider the situation. I got released, and about half of the guys who were part of my tip have been released too. So we just basically formed a gang, a criminal gang out on the street and went to the next level. Um so when I say the next level, I remember one time we were called upon to, you know, some some Chinese restaurant owner hadn't paid a debt and people were afraid to deal with him because of the triad connection. But we out of San Quentin, we weren't afraid of anything. So we went over and uh, grabbed him and, you know, convinced him to do to do what he should. <sighs> But the problem is, of course, the big, the the more what ripples in the pond you cause, the sooner comes uh, the attention of the uh, the higher levels of law enforcement. So, so did you have to leave California in a hurry? Rapidly, eventually, rapidly, rapidly. Yes. What gave you a heads up that something was going to go down? You felt the need to leave. Well, I mean. In my particular instance, I was driving down the highway, and this this uh, patrolman pulled me over. And, you know, I had a gun in my bag. You know, I mean, it was an instant, straight back to San Quentin routine. So I thought, well, that, I'm not up for that. So I escaped from him, and uh, decided it was time to uh, move to another country. And you chose Canada. Mm. And how easy was it just to move to Canada for you? It was no problem at all. You just got on the bus and uh, crossed into Canada. You lone wolf in it now, or are you crimeys coming over there with well, you as well? Well, they decided it was time, two of them decided it was time that they might like Canadian vacation too. So. And these are the notorious ones I've read about yes. in certain articles. Yes. Okay, so things going to get really heavy with these guys. Well, the actual, there actually was a plan, but it was kind of um, there was a gold refinery that I used to, that, that I knew of in the Canadian mountains, and so we thought we might just just wander up there and you know, see what was what. There was no nothing particular dramatic about it, but it was you know. But it never got to that. The Canadians uh, had been, uh, I guess, they'd been informed. So basically, we stepped into a trap. What was the trap exactly? Well, the car broke down, and I took it to a garage to be repaired. And when I went to pick it up, um, as I was talking to the garage owner, he started acting very strange and looking over his looking over his shoulder at this door. And I've got bad vibes from him, so I. I sort of backed up a bit, and suddenly two guys in plain clothes burst out of the the room, 
that went to tackle me and I backed away from him and my friend, an American guy, was outside and he saw these guys coming for me and, uh, well, as far as he was concerned, I was being attacked, so he shot one of them through the leg, told the other not to move and they were, turned out to be undercover um, RCMP officers. Anyway, there were two more of them and one other one came from behind and uh, shot him twice. Shot him, and as I said before, he went down, but they'd clipped his back of his tongue, and um, so he was bleeding heavily. But unfortunately, he was on his back, and so in the 30, 40 minutes before an ambulance came, he drowned in his own blood. So, well, how did you manage to get out of the situation? Well, unfortunately, the guy who shot him then tried to shoot me, so I had this. RCMP officer that I was sort of punching in the face regularly. And by this time, he was kind of punch drunk. And so I, I tried, I held him. I, I wanted to hold him in place um, so this other guy couldn't shoot me. And the other guy was sort of angling for his shot because, of course, you know, their blood's up and they've already clipped one guy. And fortunately, this the last policeman came out who hadn't seen all this drama and he ran over and smashed me in the face with his pistol. And instead of being shot, I just had my nose broken. So, and that ended it. So you got arrested though. Yeah. And now what, are you charged with the same as your first case? Well, no, the, the Canadians don't like uh, uh, shooting policemen. So as you probably, I think you have the same rule in, in UK. If I shoot you in the leg, that might be assault with a deadly weapon or aggravated, what, what's the term? Don't know, exactly. But if I shoot a policeman in the leg, that's attempted murder. So because it's a policeman, they always lift up the seriousness one level. So it was a charge of attempted murder. So you're in a remand jail in Canada. What was that like? Well, it was, uh, I, uh, you know, the, this, the same sort of what dynamics hold true. I mean, in Canada, the good part, of course, is that most people are white, so you don't have so much of the racial stuff. But unfortunately, I, I had one of these racial experiences almost like two hours since I was put in the, you know, <laughs> in the jail because I got let on this tier. And as I walked into the tier, I noticed that the first two cells had two Indians in them. And the third cell had an Indian, and he was gunning me off as I came in, looking evilly at me. And I had bad feeling about this, but I didn't know him, so I ignored him. And I went to my cell. And when I went to make my bed, I lifted it up, and there was a big pool of blood under the mattress. And I'm in there, and all of a sudden, this white kid comes running into the cell. And he says, they're going to get me next. They're going to get me next. And I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, the Indians, they... They broke that guy's arm and they fucked him up and that's his blood and they're going to get me next. And I said, why? He said, well, they made me play cards with him and, and I lost. And they said, I have to pay them a carton of cigarettes or my, my visitor has to bring give them the money or whatever it was. And so two hours <laughs> coming into this cell, there's already this drama is happening. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, I'm going to have to school this boy. And so he's, he's not a, Caucasian anymore. He becomes a good white boy. So I said to him, look, 
I said, there's only one way out of this. You got to show some heart. So you just, you just run into that guy's cell and give him your best shot. Just hit him as hard as you can. But when you run out, run right. Because I was like back this way on the left-hand side. And he says, okay. I said, but he's looking a bit nervous. I said, I said, seriously, I said, if you don't do this, I'm not going to help you. You're on your own. So I, I come out and I'm looking at the, the, there's a TV behind, over there's a screen and then there's a TV. And there's, in Canada, everybody watches hockey games. So I'm not you know, into hockey, but it was the only thing that was on. So I'm pretending to look at the hockey game. And this kid doesn't hit the guy. He walks in with his coffee, hot coffee, and throws it in the guy's face. And this Indian's big. He's like 6'2", about 190 pounds. And he just roars and comes barreling out of the cell after this guy. And this kid's only, you know, whatever it is, five, six, and a little guy. Anyway, the Indian comes out of the cell. I hook him around the neck, kick out his legs. Bam, he goes on the ground, stomp on his jaw a couple of times. He starts screaming. As soon as he starts screaming, the guards come. But the kid suddenly recovers his balls, and he comes running in to put the boots on this guy. So I just go back into my cell, sit down, and the kid's putting that boots to him with proper enthusiasm, and the guards see it, and they take them both away. And the kid's, he's so happy, right? He's got the heart on a mountain lion all of a sudden. Um, are you trained in martial arts? Not really, but, you know, there's there's different moves you can make. I mean, Basically, I'll tell you a story. This is a San Quentin story. One of these guys was released on the determinate sentencing. So there was no, he just was released. One day he's on the main line of San Quentin. The other day he walks out onto the street in San Francisco. Now, he's a hardcore racist, and he's, there's no halfway house, no pro parole, no nothing. There he is. And he walks down the street, and he sees this beautiful white girl, long blonde hair, walking with a black guy. And he walks over, and he says, you fucking nigga, right? And, well, you know, I mean, the black guy, though, is cool. He looks at him, and he says, I'm rated number three in Taekwondo. No, was it Taekwondo? I don't remember now. In California, which in California is pretty significant. Before he can even finish the sentence, the guy just puts blade right in his heart. What the hell? Because it doesn't matter how much martial arts you know, if you live in a middle-class society, you're not jungle instinct hot. Yeah. If you're on the San Quentin mainline, your instincts are like wild animal instincts. Yeah. You see each movement. You see who's doing what. What's he doing? How's he standing? Like this guy standing here, he's not threatening me. It's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You're sitting in the chair. You're looking around. What's a weapon? What is it? Mm -hmm. And that guy killed him. One shot to the heart mm -hmm. before the, the Taekwondo guy can even finish his warning. Right. So... The things calm down in the jail in Canada now, or does it keep? Well, no. I, unfortunately, I went to the maximum, and it's called Kent Maximum, and uh, it was like a, it was like San Quentin, except there were only 150 guys. This is well. this is prior to sentencing. Is no, it? no. This is this is after sentencing. Okay. Got, so, how long were you on remand before you got sentenced? It was about four months, I think. Something four like months. That. And what is your new sentence? Oh, I've got a, one interesting tale to tell you. Um, I go up, because this gunfight happened way off in the mountains in Canada, I go up to that little town 
to the county court and there's my trial. Anyway, I, I'm leg shackled, handcuffed, and I get put into the waiting room, um, you know, beside the courtroom and the police are standing outside. And guess who's sitting beside me on the bench? The big Indian. And he doesn't have any handcuffs or leg shackles. Oh. He's sitting there right beside me and I'm handcuffed and leg shackled. And I thought to myself, um, I'm in for a beating here. <laughs> this boy, he knows it's me and he's gonna give it to me for sure because he's got nothing to lose, right? And I I just don't know what I'm gonna do because they've they've shackled me to a belt, like hand shackled to a belt plus leg shackle. So the best I could do would be to roll up in a ball, I suppose, and just kind of wiggle around on the floor. And he looks at me and the biggest cheese-eating grin, he says, I got some Hank books. You want to read some Hank books? And he was as friendly as pie. He was offering me cigarettes. And and I thought to myself, this is really strange. I couldn't figure it out. And then I realized we were taken into court. And he was charged with raping a minor, some 13-year-old mm. girl. Mm. And he realized that I was in the courtroom with him. You're a witness. I was a witness to what he really was in for. Mm. And so his, like, ultra macho bullying and fucking up these white guys was obviously a play to make himself look tough. And But now I had the goods on him. Yep. And he was trying, to, trying so hard to be nice, right? Anyway, I, I go back to the remand center, and the same kid was there. And I said, you'll be interested in this. And I told him the tale, and boy, you know, the posse was out after this guy after that. Really? Because right? yeah. in Canada, of course, they have the same hatred of child molesters and such like. I think it's universal. Yeah. All right, so what was your sentence then? I had a 10-year sentence. And how much do you have to serve on that in Canada? Well, the mandatory release is two-thirds. They can, however, you go in front of the parole board after on that about three years and three months. So one third, you go in front of the parole board. I did the full mandatory. So, and which prison did you end up at? Well, I was in Kent to begin with, and Kent was the maximum. And in Canada, in in the West Coast, in British Columbia, they have a different demography. They don't have the racial problem because everybody's most everybody's white. Some Indians, but most everybody's white. The problem in Canada is in the West Coast, there's just an amazing number of drug addicts. So the prison is filled with drug addicts. Now, drug addicts make about the worst prisoners in the world because they combine being sleazy with being weak, with ratting people out easily, with being selfish and greedy and... I mean, they don't. They haven't taken on the convict ethos. Put it that way. So, it, I felt like I had really fallen backwards in terms of the 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 people you were sharing your space with. To be honest, I'd rather be around bank robbers and you know people like that than drug addicts. Was it much less violent than California, though? Well, interestingly enough, it was pretty violent. Was it? Um, because they, in Canada, it's 
Canada doesn't have the gun crime that America has, even though they have the same number I mean, of guns held by people. But Canada does have a pretty violent subculture. So Canadians play ice hockey. And ice hockey is basically um, assault with bodily harm as a sport. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever watched it. Yeah. yeah. Canadian ice hockey is... Uh, and so there was, um, there was also another level is that the worst criminals from Quebec would be sent to the West Coast. Now, Quebec has a serious underworld culture. We're talking anything that, that New York has, Chicago has, Montreal has. The same level of, you know, mob assassinations and, you know, organized crime. And, but Quebec is particularly famous for high-powered robbery, armored car robberies with machine guns and all that kind of stuff. And so those kind of guys, they didn't want them in Quebec. So in California, we called it bus therapy. So you move somebody away from where they're familiar. So they would, in Canada, they'd move people from Quebec all the way out to the West Coast where they knew nobody. And that way they hoped to, you know, take them away from their roots and from their support. But those boys were dangerous. And so I knew a, an English guy, actually, a dope addict dope thief and he had just he'd made some move on one of these quebec kids he cheated him out of something like I, he, he got a cuff of drugs from him and then didn't pay him and the quebecois just stabbed him right away i mean as soon as he didn't pay he didn't have the money just pulled the knife out and stabbed him and this english guy was just standing there almost died and he was just stunned he stabbed me he stabbed me and he didn't understand because for him, that kind of move in the Vancouver dope, dope world was just run-of-the-mill everyday activity. You stiff other addicts, and they stiff you, and you steal each other's stashes and whatever. But for those guys, they played by San Quentin rules. So, so it, it was a dangerous place. I mean, it, this American guy had, like me, escaped and jumped the border, got in a shootout with the police there in Saanich, but unfortunately, he, he could only, he had a 410 shotgun with birdshot. So he shot the policeman with birdshot. But all that did is make him angry. So when they had him cuffed, they had him on the ground, and the policeman's partner came up, put his pistol to his head, and pulled the trigger. Now, this American, luckily, when the gun went to his head, he shifted his head by 45 degrees, and it just blew out the skull and eye orbit, and he lost his eye. But he didn't die. And they they put his head back together, but it was like a, a teacup that had been glued. You know, they had pins and things, and he couldn't take a, a shot to the head. He was... And so they put him in the maximum. And unfortunately for this guy, he had a disconnect in his head between who he was now and who he had been. He had been a hope-to-die gangster, an escape convict, and all the rest. But now, he was essentially a cripple. And that disconnect caused what came next. The dope addicts, the dope fiends, were watching him, and they knew he had some smoke, so they robbed his stash. And he found they robbed his stash. And so he went and put, if you can believe this, 
He put a sign on the bulletin board saying, I know who did it, and you'll get yours. That's one thing you do in the joint is you never threaten anybody. You either do it or keep quiet. But what you don't do is broadcast that you're going to do it. So he went and did this. And so the dope fiends, they got, they they know they knew this guy who was an out, outright psycho. This guy had beaten an old woman to death because she complained about his deaf, deaf leopard music or something like that. Anyway, he was in there, and all he did was just point him in this guy's direction. And he ran in with a weight bar, and he broke the guy's arms and broke his legs, and then whacked him in the skull, shattered his skull again. So I wouldn't say that prison was particularly peaceful. Did anyone try and test you? Well, again... I was looking like I looked in that picture. That was taken from the Canadian pen. Yeah. And gunfights with the police, uh, you know, the newspapers. I sort of had my mana intact. But, of course, they're watching. And they tried to, a couple of times they tried to trick me into stuff. For example, one time they saw that I was running. I used to run a lot around the track, my weight partner and I. And so one of these guys sent a, one of these Quebecois fellows up to me and he said, you got a lot of money on your books. Because at this time, unfortunately, the inmate committee members had access to how much money everybody had on their books. Mm. And they saw, I, I had a job sort of teaching remedial students with this prison educational program. And they paid me real money they paid me like a thousand dollars a term wow which for prisoners huge. was huge and he says you're the richest inmate in the joint and i <laughs> went oh shit oh no <laughs> so they these guys thought how they're going to get me they saw i was a runner so they sent this guy to me and they said uh there's some guys want to want to make a bet want to make some bets i said well, what do they want to make bets on he says well he says they bet they can beat you running he says, and uh, they're liable to put up money. I mean, real money on this. And I said, well, how much money? He says, well, I don't know. How much would you be willing to go for? And so we talked some more. And the deal is they've got these one, one tall, lithe, sporty Indian. And then this half black guy who's like an antelope. I mean, he's, he's naturally athletic. But the thing is, I'd never seen them run before. So I didn't know if they could go the distance or if they were really fast and they'd smoke me or what would happen. So I decided to try and hedge my bets. And I said, well, can I pick out two other guys from my team? So you, know, sorry, you got two on that team. Can we, can, can we have three on our team? And they said, sure. Because they didn't think anyone else could run. So they come down to it and they say, okay, we're going to have a race. How much money are we putting on it? And I say to this Frenchman, I say, because I'm thinking to myself, these guys are trying to set me up. But I thought to myself, if you're going to ambush me, I'm going to ambush you. <laughs> so I said to the Frenchman, I said, take every bet. Take every carton they want to put up. Whatever it is they want to bet, we'll cover it. And he was as happy as could be because this was real activity, right? I mean, the joint, it's pretty slow the every day to day. But now they got something. <laughs> They're going to have a real race with real money. 
And these people have real, not, I won't call it antagonism, but there was this sort of dope fiends from Vancouver on this side. And there were some big um, like kingpins from Vancouver, guys who'd like arranged the dope and, they're, and they're, they, they took the whole, the whole group. So they had a whole group there. Actually, much like the group you you had, right? <laughs> so the day for the day for the race came, and everybody's out. You know, they're on the bleachers. People are making side bets. All of a sudden, time is real. It's not you're in the prison. You're almost at the racetrack or something, right? And the race starts, and these guys take off. And this black guy, he uh, he was like watching an antelope run. He was smooth and just like silk. And when I run, I go red in the face and I'm chugging away, right? But it's a mile run. And these guys just take off because, of course, they want to look good in front of their mates, right? So away they go. And I'm thinking to myself, you, you boys, you, this is a mile run. I don't know. Do you run? Jog. No, I'm not, not that good. Well, a mile run's not like 10 kilometers. 10 kilometers, you go to speed. But a mile run is a race. Anyway, so the race runs and... I come third and my other two guys come first and second and both these guys don't finish the race. So we smoked and we got all the money. They paid up. They, well, they, they paid up because these, the sleazy dope fiends wouldn't have paid. But the money actually came from the, the kingpins. For them, it was just entertainment. Chump change. Yeah, it's chump change to just you know be entertained in an afternoon. There's a bit of buzz. Everybody has a good time. So... So you said there was a few times they tried to trick you. What else did they well, do? Well, I, I used to run a book, like on betting, because the big problem in in the joint is, you know, debts. Like, you might want to bet a game, but do you really have a carton of cigarettes in your pocket to put up on the debt on the bet? But if you have somebody who'll take the bets and lay off the bets, who you trust, who'll pay up, then it makes it possible. And I like to, you know, in, in the joint, you're always looking for something to do. I mean, it's going to be interesting. And so betting on the games was a bit of being outside. It was like, you know, the guys related to it. So I used to um, take bets. And fortunately, I, I, I discovered something which, of course, bet bookies probably already know. And that's that it, once you, what you want to do is you want to catch a group of degenerate gamblers. I mean, complete addicts who can't help themselves, but who have money. And fortunately for me, there were two Chinese dr uh, drug, drug importers, and there was a bent stockbroker. And these guys, the bent stockbroker couldn't, for, for the life of him, if he bet one side of a bet, you knew they were going to lose. You could just throw <laughs> your inheritance on it. And so... These guys, and so what happened, of course, is that, again, this this group, the old kingpins, want, you know, they start trying to overload me on one side to catch me out. Mm -hmm. Now, they were cooler than in San Quentin. San Quentin, the prison gang might just come up on you with knives. These guys were, they were pretty cool. They try and trick you into doing something you're already doing, but make push you to go too far. Mm. So... Fortunately, I was able to because I was because I had this money. I was able to fund it, and so I could. I never never got caught. So, outside of your entrepreneurial activity, what did you do to fill your time for the rest of your sentence in Canada? 
Well, I was really lucky because they had something called the prison education system. And it was out of uh, uh, the university in British Columbia, the uh, Simon Fraser and the University of Victoria. And they had a group of, um, how would you call them, lefties. Um, actually, one of them was English, Socialist Workers Party, used to work for the BBC. And this group, they wanted to, um, they had a, an idea that teaching humanities to prisoners might awaken an awareness of the values of Western culture and that people would make the conscious choice not to be criminals. And so this ethos, they, they brought in humanities courses, literature and art and history and psychology and philosophy. And the idea was to, um, one, get prisoners to get university degrees. So they Did were... you already have a degree? No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't finish my degree because I went to prison. What subject was it you were doing? I was doing Japanese studies. Okay. But of course, the university wasn't doing Japanese studies. So I took... And anyway, I, this is... I died and gone to heaven basically with this because, you know, the usual books in prison are dusters and uh, just cheap, you know, murder fiction and sci-fi and stuff. But these guys were actually intelligent, committed uh, people who were bringing in real books, and we were. And, and I had, I would have a tutorial with with a full professor from the university, one on one for an hour. I mean, just things that you'd never conceive of. Like if you were a paying student now, imagine you'd be lucky now if you saw your professor for fifteen minutes and you didn't just, you know. So, with this prison education program, I got right into it. And I finally, I got my degree, and then I started teaching for them in the prison to the other prisoners, different things, mostly remedial stuff. And I got paid. And I, you know, we started publishing a prison journal, and we got involved with outside, bringing outside groups in, like students from the university doing criminology would come in, and we'd organize sort of get-togethers between prisoners and students so they could ask their questions directly with no mediation between, you know, books or teachers and such like. So it was it was really good. I mean, I, I've got to give those guys credit. Of course, the programs disappeared. It was defunded when they went back to the old punishment regime. But the prison education program from the University of Victoria was excellent. So how did it feel to go from this high adrenaline lifestyle then to be teaching people, prisoners. A third of the prisoners where our house couldn't even read or write. And I was assigned at one point to uh, help them do some stuff for the high school, the, the GED, I think it's called. So to go from this wild lifestyle and help, helping other people, how did that feel? Well, it wasn't a hard transition because my mother was a university professor and I grew up around universities. So I sort of knew how to carry myself. And I'd been a student before I was busted and so in a sense i'd got that stuff out of my system i, I think what do they call it when um, a boy wants to turn into a man a rite of passage yeah well that was my rite of passage going to san quentin basically baptism of fire yeah i knew who i was after that and i was securing myself and that that means something and I, of course, you know, that's 11 years spent inside. But you can't look at what is time wasted? 
I mean, is time wasted working at the Lloyds Bank for 11 years, uh, you know, punching the computer screen? Is that, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. what else did I learn? I learned how to play badminton in prison. What about chess? My tennis game improved. Canada, I must say, has got some good sports facilities. And did you play any chess? The guy's chess is checkers is their game. Checkers, okay. Prisoners in America, chess is a bit too cerebral for them. <laughs> We're talking checkers. Did you play chess with anybody? Yeah, yeah. There was heavyweight chess players in Arizona, uh-huh. definitely. They schooled me. I thought I knew a thing or two because I was in a chess club when I was a kid. I went in there, got my ass whooped right away. I had to have my parents sending in chess books so I could learn all these uh, opening moves and all that kind wow. of stuff. These guys, like they like gambling, poker. Yeah. But of course, I wouldn't sit down with anybody because in in Canada, for example, that bent stockbroker I was telling you about, he came in, he brought $5,000 up his ass, and he, he, I guess he wanted to buy friends or something, try and protect him against the... So he sat down at the poker table, and there were six guys playing. And of course, he lost his $5,000 like in about three days. Yeah. And what he didn't know was that every single person was playing it. They all they're all playing together. He got hustled. He got hustled. Mm-hmm. You know. So I wouldn't play games with people because like if you start playing chess with somebody, the next thing they want to start betting cigarettes or and it, you know the guy's gonna try and hustle you. Yeah, I never I never um staked anything on my games. It was just sportsman's pleasure. Well that's all right if you can maintain it like that. Yeah. So what year did you get released in Canada? Well, I was deported to, uh, to England in uh, 1987. Why were you deported to England? I was born here. Whereabouts in England were you born? Carlisle. Okay. And how did you end up in America? My mother was a professor there. So your parents, were they both from Scotland? No, no. My, mother, my father's from uh, Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire. Yeah. And your mother? She was Canadian. Canadian. And then they were teaching and working out of California. I see. They both got PhDs at the University of California. I see. Okay. So when you ended up deported to the UK, did you have anybody here? Well, I got some cousins. I got some cousins. But of course, you know, you get (laughs) your family reputation is basically. (laughs) Black sheep. Yeah. So what was your support structure? What year was it again? Sorry. 1987. So 1987, we got... um, England is it's like the crash of 87, is the big rise of the yuppies and all that kind of stuff. Thatcher, is it? And um, you're coming back to the UK, black sheep, family members probably don't want to support you. So what do you do? The doll. The doll? Yeah. And did the doll give you housing benefit, a place to live and all yeah. that, a flat? Yeah. What part of the, the UK were you in? South Coast. South Coast. Yeah. And um, so did- I basically got the doll, but I mean, in those days, you could live on the dole, and it was okay, but there's no future to it. So I thought to myself, I've got to, I've got to take my education a bit, a bit further if I'm going to do anything. Because, I mean, I have to say, I, I realized that I'd gone as close to the edge of the abyss as you could. Now, the guys, remember I told you there were guys in my tip? Well, dead, dead. Life without possibility of parole, life, but another life on top of that. So that was the option. So you're not thinking, 
look at the, what's happened to those guys. I'm going to make a go of the straight and narrow and try and rebuild my life and not go back to crime. Exactly. I, I completely turned back on crime because there was no, I mean, you know, in California, it's three strikes and you're out. Well, I've had my, I had my three strikes and, you know, the next time I'd just be written off as a habitual criminal. So how old were you in 1987? 1987, I would have been uh, 33. You strike me as, you know, you've got these entrepreneurial skills, obviously, is that what you then did? Did you kind of like do your own business? Well, I eventually ended up in business, but um, yeah, I, I'll take my hand at whatever's coming up if there's some if there's an opportunity. I mean, if my theory is, if you can do business in San Quentin, you can do business anywhere. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that should be inspirational to prisoners worldwide. Jesus, so. My therapist said to me, Sean, look, the skills you've cultivated in here to deal with these thugs is going to last you for the rest of your life. So is that what you're saying here? Well, for example, um, I, have, I have a property. It's an old industrial property. And when I bought it, I had this tenant, and he was uh, hes a junkyard dog. He was one of these fellas, big guy, bald head. He's... You know, he's involved in the dark side and all kinds of stuff. But he loved to intimidate people. So he would shout in your face and bang the table and make threats. And he'd, he'd threatened the fellow I bought the place from so badly that the old guy sold it cheap just to get out of there. And I inherited this guy. But it was like watching him go through his routine. I'd seen it a hundred times before. I was just watching. It was like, you know... It was like watching a drama on TV. Each time he'd like take, because he was smart. He wouldn't, you know, he'd come right to the edge. Like one time, mom, he didn't pay the rent for a while. So I went to his house late one night and banged on the door. He wasn't there, but his 16-year-old daughter was. And she said, what do you want? I said, I want my rent money. She said, what do you mean? I said, your daddy's not paying the rent. He, he told me he did. I said, well, you, do, you go tell him. Anyway, so... Next time I come to the place, he just starts ranting and raving. You went to my house. You talked to my daughter. You told her I hadn't paid the rent, screaming and shouting and banging the table. And he throws a chair against the wall. And I'm just watching this guy. I'm, of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting myself. So if he like makes a move in my direction, I can deal with him. But you know, you've gone through all that. You've, you've heard, you've, you've seen that routine worked out. That's a prison, prison routine. The guy screams and shouts, gets in your face. And, you know, you're meant to back down. You're meant to be intimidated. Probing your reaction. So, like, that's... And he, you know, that was... In fact, that guy still has a property next door, so... Uh, <laughs> so how successful have you become? Well, successful enough. I mean, what is successful these days? I don't know. I mean, the money's inflated so badly, you call it the, the British peso now. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you go through these things, you learn that success is... is um. Success is mental, really. And you strike me as level-headed. Well, if you if you feel comfortable with yourself, you've been successful. Yeah, if you're happy in your own skin. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Goal, isn't it? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, money doesn't really matter that much. I mean, what difference does it make what kind of car you drive? Basically, they're all the same tech these days, whether you paid 50,000 pounds for your car or 1,500. And... You know, clothes or what else? I mean, you want to wear jewelry? Uh, I mean, 
life is the, the simpler things are the ones that are the most pleasurable. Yeah. So enjoying the small things. And that's one thing prison teaches you. Mm-hmm. And that's one lesson that you learn is that you can live in a small space. You can eat shitty food. You can you can put up with stuff. And, and so when you run into what comes in later, you hear these people whinging all the time and you think, come on, I mean, you guys, you've never seen it. You've never lived it. Yeah. So. I'll tell you what's going to happen next on YouTube then. People are going to be endlessly fascinated with your story and predicting. It's going to get a lot of views and people are going to start to Google you and the trolls and the skeptics, the floodgate is going to completely open because they're going to find these articles that describe you as a James Bond supervillain with an IQ of 160. They describe your partner, Hennessy, as um, a serial killer, um, murdered multiple people, but was given a pass because of his um, drugs. Oh, that was, for... that's Philip Thompson. Oh, that's Thompson, sorry. That, that's sorry, Philip let's correct that. Yeah, Thompson then. Um, they got him described as a serial killer who was doing, okay. And um, you're trained in this Japanese martial art that, you just basically the police when they confronted come up to you you just cut right through them and if that doesn't work you know you just engage in shootouts immediately without any hesitation and then there's also they've got you pegged as the murderer of actress valerie mcdonald um which was a, a a brutal thing that happened there's allegations that she was raped murdered tortured all this stuff so these media you know there was an article that came out about me um, a few months after my arrest and it was everything I did and 10 times more. So I know how the media worked. They, they, they want to get the clicks. They put all this stuff out there. But I guarantee that trolls are going to latch onto this. They're going to say, you've got this guy on your podcast. He's a murderer. Um, this Valerie Mac, um, McDonald was raped and all this stuff and Blah, blah, blah. So you've never, ever been convicted of any sex offences. So no. just, let's, just, let's just make this perfectly clear. Never, never convicted, never charged, never even questioned. Yeah, yeah. And I would never, ever have anyone on my podcast who was a chomo. So let, let's squash that one right away. So what would you like to say, then about these hyped-up stories and these allegations of you, you being involved in the murder of Valerie MacDonald, the actress? Well, it started because when I got out um, on parole, my job was assistant hotel manager for this small residency hotel. And Valerie McDonald was one of the tenants. Now, a couple of people came to me and complained about her and said that she's a prostitute. Considering the neighborhood, I wasn't surprised. And I wasn't particularly bothered one way or the other. The key point is, is she paying the rent? Well, she wasn't and nobody else were either. They were uh, on rent strike, which is the reason we were drafted in to, shall we say, solve the rent strike problem. So we went about our business. And uh, when we, after about two or three weeks, the ones who wouldn't pay were tossed out. And the ones who did pay stayed. Now, she didn't pay. And she disappeared from the scene. The next, you fast forward, it turned out that not only did she disappear from the scene, she disappeared completely. And her parents, it turned out, were 
politically connected in Oregon. And they had some juice with the legislature. And they came down to try and find out what happened to it. And they hired um, a private investigating company called Paladino. Paladino, I think. Quite a famous one. Now, what Paladino did was they had this couple who had money, who were desperately, um, what, desperately wanted to find out what happened to their daughter. And they took these people on the magical, you know, miracle ride. And they would bring ex-convicts up who said they knew us and said that she was tortured for days in this place. And they, this and that and this and that. And they, they, I think they squeezed a couple hundred thousand dollars out of this couple. Jesus. And of course, to get that kind of money, the PI has got to continue to have a new lead or a new... And so some junkie thief would say, oh yeah, I knew those guys in Quentin. I saw them outside. And yeah, they said to me, have you got some cyanide or, you know, this kind of stuff. And of course, that would open up a new avenue for them to race down. And the, the long and short of it was, is that basically she told them that we'd murdered this girl. Now, in support of this theory is when I was arrested and they seized my stuff and Hennessy's stuff, they found Valerie's jacket and Valerie's uh, boating registration card. And I think there was a suggestion, maybe a lock of her hair or some hair on her head or something like that. And of course, the circumstantial evidence jump as well. The only way you'd have had that is if you'd abducted her and killed her. But of course, what they didn't mention was the fact that Michael Hennessy, who was also an assistant manager of the hotel, had cleaned out her room. And that's presumably where he found the jacket and the voting registration. And it turned out that he'd been writing love letters to her or poetry or something. And so you might have had a thing with her. Now, she came from Oregon, and apparently they found her body somewhere in Washington. Um, and the suggestion, the story that certainly her mother believes, is that we kidnapped her. Uh, this part's a bit confusing because they, they suggest that we kidnapped her in California and then buried her in cement and then took her where? Up to Washington to throw in the river. I, I, you know, I mean, the problem is, of course, for me, is that on the web, one guy says something and another guy just puts his block on top of that. And pretty soon you've got a magic castle. And as you described with the CIA and, the, you know, what was it? Um, black ops running in. Black ops. Nicaragua, <laughs> cocaine for arms. You guys were getting weapons licenses and selling arms to the Contras and all this stuff. And that, I mean, it's pretty, when I read that stuff, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought, wow, these guys are really up to something. And then I realized they were actually writing about me. <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, I was just a college student who did something very stupid ended up in prison, and I met Philip Thompson. And basically, all these stories come from Philip Thompson. Now, he's a pretty enigmatic character. Um, I couldn't tell you what's true or not. I, I never sat down on any CIA briefings. 
<laughs> I don't remember President Reagan giving me the okay to <laughs> smuggle guns. Or, so, but it's it's a classic lesson in what happens on the internet when the net sleuths get excited. <laughs> They're going to get excited over this, I guarantee. There's going to be all kinds of theories coming up. Is there anything that I've missed out or anything you would like to say? Any any final stories or anything in conclusion you'd like to say to the viewers out there on YouTube? Well, the thing that, that got me sort of coming here and that, that I feel is a real injustice is the fact that in today's internet world, once your name is on the internet as a criminal or having committed a criminal offense, you have no chance to put together a future. Not the chance I had. I had a chance because... I got out before the internet happened, and I could put my life together before the internet was there. Just every single what you know problem you get into is there for everybody to read. Now, how does a guy in Britain, for example, who comes out of prison, how does he get a job except for being a navvy at a construction site? Maybe. I mean, there's one of these advanced criminal checks made on everybody. You can't be a teacher, you can't work for the government, you can't be in the army, you can't... I mean, how does a person start a new life? And that's the part that seems deeply unfair to me. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. I work with a charity called Prisoners Abroad, and for people like you in your situation, sometimes they come back to the UK and they've got nothing, they don't know anybody, they've been out of the country for years, their families are overseas, so Prisoners Abroad will hook them up with a place to live you know, so they can have a shower right away and get cleaned up try and get them to job interviews and, and, and stuff like that. So there are some companies in this country, I think like Timpsons and stuff like that, um, make extra efforts to try and hire people with criminal records. But you're right, the recidivism rate for people getting out with criminal records is so high because, um, you know, it's it's such a competitive job environment. Who are, they going to, are they going to give it to someone who's volunteering that they've committed crimes or are they going to give it to somebody else? And generally, they'll just give it to somebody else. Well, for example, I worked as a teacher. I worked as a teacher for many years, and I was successful as a teacher. I could handle problem students. It really wasn't a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I had an interesting take on things because of my life experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, why should people be barred from teaching because they had a criminal record? I mean, I could understand it if you were a pedophile or something like that, but, you know, it students need different points of view. It can't just be the same sort of, you know, cookie cutter, lefty university uh, student gets his degree and then goes to the classroom. And uh, it's a real shame. So I think the work you do is excellent because you are giving another point of view and you are giving opportunities for um, the ex-convicts to, uh, you know, put their viewpoint forward. Appreciate that, John. Shall we finish with a San Quentin prison handshake? Uh, I don't know. There wasn't much uh, touching of bodies in San Quentin. <laughs> in Arizona, it was the... <laughs> what no, was it in San Quentin? No, they, they, people were pretty uh, nervous about their personal you space. You didn't get close. No, you didn't get close to people like that or make moves. Maybe you're Sally, you know. Does that mean I'm not going to get a hug then? Um, is that what you want? <laughs> 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 Cheers. Cheers. All right, thanks for coming on, man. It was no, it was 